0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N com.
1: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket.
2: Hello, I'm Razia Iqbal. Now, we all have touchstones, points of reference that we return to and that hold our interest throughout our lives, things that offer hope, comfort and inspiration. Now, it could be a book, it could be a poem, a film, a painting, a song, an object, even a place, anything. It's their choice in their history. I'm delighted today to introduce my guest, the writer... Salman Rushdie. It's not an overstatement to say that his second novel, Midnight's Children... Changed literary fiction. It won the Booker Prize and was voted the prize's best of Booker on two separate occasions. It has sold more than one million copies in the UK alone. He influenced an entire generation of South Asian writers, though not only them. He sparked a revolution in post-colonial literature with his distinctive style, as well as chronicling the lives of those in the diaspora. His latest novel, Kishot, is a wild ride through modern America and society on the verge of social and moral collapse. Now, as our guests uh, this evening, as we've heard, get an exclusive 20% discount on the retail recommended price of this book at Waterstones, just click the link in the book tab on the right hand side of your screen for more details. Salman a very warm welcome. Salman let's start with just simply getting you to tell us what you have chosen as your three touchstones.
3: Well the first the first one is a is an object. It's a, it's actually the the first thing I was ever given in my life. I was given it when I was 1 day old. And it's a it's a it's a piece of silver. It's a little silver ingot about an inch high. Which is engraved with the unpartitioned map of India, because you know when I was born it was two months before the partition. So in those days Pakistan didn't exist. So I have it was given to me by a, one of my father's friends, um, and and I I've kept it with me ever since, uh, uh, always somewhere close by. And second thing is a story which is. um I mean, I'm a big Joyce fan, so I, it's, it's difficult to know what bit of Joyce to choose, but I, but I chose his short story, The Dead from Dubliners, which I think has some claim to be one of the very greatest, if not the greatest short story in the language. And the third one is the well-known Nobel Literature Laureate, Bob Dylan. <laughs> And uh, I, I've chosen uh, his, his song, Mr. Tambourine Man, which again, I mean, I could have chosen a hundred different songs, but I chose that one.
2: Fantastic. They all sound wonderful. I'm so looking forward to talking about them in detail. Let's start with the, with the ingot. So the oldest thing that you possess, given to you when you were one day old, what does it mean to you? What is it about this that has made you hold on to it?
3: Well, I mean, first of all, it just is a link to a childhood which I remember with great affection. You know, I mean, my, my, unlike the hero of Midnight's Children, whose childhood is somewhat fraught and troubled, I, I remember my childhood as being all, sort of uneventfully happy. And this little piece of silver sort of takes me back to, not just to the time, but actually to the place where I grew up and the neighborhood, you know, and uh, all of that. And I'm kind of amazed that I never lost it because, well, I mean, when I was a kid, my dad used to keep it locked up, and I would have to ask to see it because he didn't trust me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but when I went to when I went to boarding school in, in England, he gave it to me to bring with me, and somehow, amazingly, through four and a half years of a, of, a, of a rugby school education, I failed to lose it, and and, and nobody pitched it. I mean, it's silver. It's worth. It's worth something. It's a solid.
2: Well, I, 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 so it's, it's worth something. Just hold it up for us, and 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 you've you've described it a little bit. But on 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 it, it says it says ten dollars, which is about I think just over a hundred grams in weight. Yeah. And it's of a
3: very high degree of purity. It's it's a it's almost a hundred percent pure silver, which is actually purer than the pure silver you get now. You know, so. Yeah, I mean, it's and it's got it has this beautiful little little map engraved on it,
2: and 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 emblazoned with India across it. I I I wonder about the the fundamental narrative of that that foundational narrative of India, which it obviously symbolises, and 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 what that means to you, the secular narrative of an India. Yeah,
3: well, I mean, I'm a you know I'm a child of that generation. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm slightly older than the children I wrote about in the novel. but I mean, I'm eight weeks older. <laughs> so, so not a great deal. And I guess I grew up as, as a person who, who bought very passionately the idea of Indian secularism, the kind of Nehruvian uh, idea of India. And my family, you know, like, like many Indian Muslim families were, was divided more or less down the middle by the partition. You know, half my relatives were were either were or went to, were in or went to Pakistan, and, and an equivalent number decided that they didn't want to do that, you know, that, that that they, that they, and that included, you know, my parents' view as expressed to me at some point was that they felt, they felt more Indian than Muslim, if you know what I mean, that, that, that they, they, they didn't want to be in a, a religious state, they wanted to be in the secular state that was being born um on the indian side of the frontier so i remember listening to my parents and people of their generation regretting the partition and wishing that in some way it could have been avoided um, and that this this map this this unified map you know could have remained the case because at that time you know and because at that time it felt it, it was one country it felt like one country you know? and, and and even growing up when I would go with my parents to visit relatives in Karachi or in Rawalpindi, they still felt like the same place. I mean, Pakistan felt more conservative, but they still essentially felt like the same place. And now they don't. Now they don't. You know, I, 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 now they really feel like very different places.
2: And also, when you were growing, when you were at school here in in rugby in in England, I, I wonder about the the. The strength that this ingot gave you, because I know that you are very particular about not wanting to call the city that you grew up in Mumbai. You insist on calling it Bombay, and, and it's those changes that I think mean something in particular to you.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think about Mumbai the way people who live in Saigon think about Ho Chi Minh City. A, it's, it's a fake name. And one of the... The argument is that whereas there are ancient Indian cities which had ancient Indian names which were then anglicized, you know, like Kolkata becoming Calcutta, like Vadodara becoming Baroda, etc., like, like Varanasi becoming Benares, it seems to me reasonable that those cities should go back to their traditional names. That, 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 that If people want to prefer now to say Kolkata, I think fair enough. You know, uh, the, the, the difference with Bombay is that it's not an ancient city. It's a, it's a city that didn't exist until the British built it, you know. Um, I mean, it was a, a group of islands and fishing villages. I mean, actually, if you wanted the oldest name, uh, the, the fisher folk who lived there were called, the, they were called the Koli people. There are still some of them there. And the southern part of, of the island, uh, as it now is, is, is still called Kolaba um, after them. And that's probably as old a name as you could get, you know, um, uh Mumbai is a a concocted name. And so I I don't, um, I I don't use it. It's a generational thing. You know, I mean, I think a lot of people of my generation still say Bombay. And, and, And a lot of younger people growing up who've not known anything except Mumbai, you know, say, say that without a problem.
2: It, it, it's it sounds as though from when you talk about the amazement that you didn't actually ever lose this ingot that that it it has become very precious to you and i and and i wonder just picking up on this idea of the 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 foundational narrative of india what you what you turn to and what you think about when you look at this ingot in terms of the soul of india today which is such a different country to 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 the idea that nehru and gandhi had
3: yeah i mean i think you know there's a the philosopher Sunil Kilnani has a, a wonderful book called *The Idea of India*, and and uh, and he explores this idea of a secular state. Uh, how hard it is for, a, in fact, a very religious country, a country in which almost everybody has religious belief, to agree for everybody to agree with each other that that will not be an element of the state. That that religion will remain a private matter and will not be publicly powerful or empowered and and one of the reasons in india for that was be- precisely because of the partition massacres in in which so many muslims were killed by hindus and hindus by muslims that the idea was that if you had a sectarian constitution uh it would perpetuate that kind of violence uh, and and that the way of keeping the peace was to take religion out of the public arena and 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 I mean, it worked for a long time. uh, uh, Now, as you say, there is an administration in India which is much more a kind of Hindu nationalist government, and is trying to, to, trying with some success, to move away from that idea, which I think is a, a great sadness.
2: Uh, and the ingot, I presume, also connects you very deeply with your, with your father and your parents generally.
3: Yeah. I mean, it is, it's a reminder of all of that, you know, was, especially as I said, because my dad kept it locked up. He wasn't very good at looking after things, actually. I mean, I, 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 mean, <laughs> I I've, I've often told the story of this first short story I ever wrote, which was based on having seen the Wizard of Oz. And, and he got his secretary to type it up for me. And then he said, look, if I give it to you, you'll lose it, so I'll look after it. And then he lost it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Just a wonderful way for us then to get into your next touchstone, which is, in fact, a short story. And, and it's the, the last short story in James Joyce's collection, The Dubliners, which was published in 1914. So tell us why, tell us why this is so important to you.
3: When I was, when I was beginning to think about being a writer, I I suppose when I was at Cambridge, and I hadn't really written anything worth mentioning, Joyce was one of the, what became one of the kind of giant figures for me. And, and, uh, in a kind of funny way, because I, I had a, I was going out with somebody who was doing a a dissertation on Finnegan's Wake and the French Nouveau Roman. As, an, as I must say, as an act of great love. <laughs> I therefore had to read Finnegan's Wake and a lot of French nouveau romancier. Michel Boutor, Nathalie Sarot, uh, etc. Painful experience. And, and and of course, Finnegan's Wake is by far the most complicated and difficult of Joyce's books. You know? um, and and I, you know, I, I had trouble with it as everybody does. and I went sort of backwards through Joyce. So I went from Finnegan's Wake back into Ulysses, and from that back into the portrait of the artist as a young man, and from that back into the, the the short stories, into Dubliners, and which and the books become incre as you go back in time, they become increasingly accessible. By the time you get to Dubliners, it's just really very beautiful stories. So, um, and and I do think the Dead is an unbelievably moving story because you know it's 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 about. Husband and wife and the husband discovers in the course of the story that his wife has really loved another man who, who died for her. You know, and, and he realizes that whatever he does, he can never live up to that. He can never live up to the love of somebody who died for her. And, and so even though, you know, they don't break up or anything, they're together, but he just has to understand that he will always come second. Know, to, um, and that the dead, the power of the dead, is greater in, than the power of the living.
2: The, the the particular The particular passage that you return to again and again is is the one right at the end. I wonder if you would read it for us.
3: This is uh, when Gabriel Gabriel is the man. This is this is when he's begun to to weep because uh, because he realizes what we've just been saying, he realizes that, that, that the real love of his wife's life is is a man who has died. Uh, and, and he goes to look out of the window and um, a few light taps on the pane made him turn to the window. It had begun to snow again. He watched sleepily the flakes, silver and dark, falling obliquely against the lamplight. The time had come for him to set out on his journey westward. Yes, the newspapers were right. Snow was general all over Ireland. It was falling on every part of the dark central plain, on the treeless hill, falling softly upon the bog of Allen and farther westward, softly falling into the dark, mutinous Shannon waves. It was falling, too, upon every part of the lonely churchyard on the hill where Michael Fury lay buried. It lay thickly drifted on the crooked crosses and headstones On the spears of the little gate on the barren thorns, his soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling like the descent of their last end upon all the living and the dead. I mean, it doesn't get better than that
2: it's so beautiful I, I wonder if we can just unpack it a little bit through through the prism of what it meant to you because you know you could argue that 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 is sort of quite a a maudlin reflection but in fact it feels like an affirmation of life at the same time doesn't it yeah it's
3: just it has a it has the power of intense beauty you know, and 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 that in a way is a greater power than what it's saying you know, it, it, it it it's a Yes, it's about, it's about human life as we live it. You know, here, Michael Fury, the young man who's referred to in the passage, is the dead man that his wife used to love, you know, and, and so, and the snow is falling at the beautiful reversal, falling faintly, faintly falling, um, um, overall the living and the dead, you know, where that we're, that in a way, they, the living and the dead are united by the snow. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've always remembered, when John Huston made his film of the dead, it's a very good film um, with Angelica Huston and Gabriel Byrne um, as the married couple. And, and at the very end of the film, when we've had this whole emotional scene, you know, the camera simply does what the story does. The camera turns to the window and looks out at the window and, and, and there's snow falling outside. And instead of there being actors acting, uh, a voiceover comes in and just reads that passage, you know, um, and, uh, and it, what it felt to me watching the film was that we had gone from watching a very good film to hearing genius and that there's a difference between the very good and the great. And, and uh, that passage of Joyce actually just made me think. Okay, that's that really just is as good as it gets. You can't write better than that. And, and actually, it scared me. Joyce. Joyce's work scared me because when I, as a young man, read it, I thought, well, what are you going to do? It's all, it's all he's done it. You know, it's it's all done here, and uh, <laughs> and, um, and you know, I can't do I can't do this. It must be like a young nineteen or twenty year old. Writer who wants to be a playwright reading Shakespeare. I'm thinking, oh, I may as well give up. <laughs> <laughs>
2: But, but I mean, you, you might have thought that when you first read it, but I, I wonder what it is then that brings you back to it again and again. I mean, it's obviously the, the aesthetics of it. It's completely beautiful to, to read again. But, but I also wonder about the impact that it makes on you as a writer.
3: Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think Joyce in general, you know, because people think of him as difficult. And as I say, Finnegans way, very difficult, but but the, other, but the other stuff not so much really, you know. And 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 I think what people miss when they are scared off Joyce you know, is is, is the, the very deep humanity of his writing, you know, his, his incredibly deep love of human beings, so, and and uh, wonderful writer of women, you know. Uh, uh, I, mean, I mean, Molly Bloom's soliloquy at the end of Ulysses is, is maybe the best piece of writing that a man has ever done about a woman's interior life, um, and and um, uh, and very funny. You know, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of Joyce that is very funny, and also it has the quality of great literature, which is that every time you read it, it gives you something else, uh, It gives you something you didn't have the previous time. Partly that's because you change, you know, I mean, when I first read Dubliners, when I first read Ulysses, I was no more than 20 years old. You know, that, that's a, I mean, that's more than half a century ago. No, I'd say, I'd say I've read it. I've read these, these stories and this novel three or four times in the interim, you know, and, and they, they feel like somewhat different texts each time because I'm bringing something different to it
2: there's also it occurs to me that the story is also about Gabriel's observation that that everyone himself included will only one day be a memory when he when he talks about the the, the dead and i i wonder as you have gone back to this story whether you think about your own legacy at all
3: yeah i mean i just hope there is one <laughs> i mean obviously if you write sort of my kind of books rather than kind of pulp fiction, that there, there's a, there's a part of you that is writing for posterity. There's a part of you that, that hopes that these books will outlive you, you know, that, 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 uh, that they, I mean, I remember Martin Amis having this nice phrase once where he said that, you know, when he, what he wanted to leave behind was a shelf of books. You know, he wanted to be able to say like from here to here, it's me, you know, and, and, and that's what you hope for, you know, and you, you have no idea if it's going to happen. I mean, I know there are so many cases of writers who were enormously celebrated in their, in their lifetimes, who fell into obscurity, you know, quite, quite soon afterwards. And, and, and vice versa, writers who were not so well regarded in their lifetime, who became part of the fabric of, of the, of the literary, of the literary canon, you know, and, uh, so you'd never know. You know. All you can do is put it out there. I mean, I like it. You know, if I look at some of the older books like, like Midnight Children, for example, that, that it's now, I mean, 1981, it's almost 40 years since it came out. It's 45 years since I started writing it. And the fact that people still find it valuable, that, that there are still readers who respond well to it, that feels that feels great, you know, because that means that it's left a couple of generations already, you know, and and if it could go on doing that, then maybe it'll stick around. You know? um, uh, but that's yeah. I mean, that's what, of course, you think about that, you know, or at least I, I mean, you don't you don't think about it when you're writing. You, know? you can't write for the future. You, know, you 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 have to write for the people who might pick up your book uh, while you're still <laughs> while you're still around.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, of course, anything can happen to any one of us at any time. And, um, but, but it does occur to me that you, you lived with the actual threat of death for a very long time with the, with the Iranian fatwa. And I wonder in that context, how, how much literature going back to the same thing again and again meant an awful lot more to you. And this in particular, this story in particular.
3: Yeah, it helped, it helped a lot, literature. You know, I mean, just to have, the history of literature to think about, you know, and 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 the fact is that I'm not the first writer to have had a difficult time. You know, uh, uh, Dostoevsky faced a firing squad, uh, and it was a pretend firing squad; they didn't actually shoot him, but he didn't know that. You know, he didn't know that it was just being done to scare him. Uh, and and you know, Joyce himself had a very difficult life politically. I mean he, he um you know he was in exile from Ireland most of his life. Uh and uh and his relationship with Ireland was very sad, I mean so much so that when he died, his widow, Nora Barnacle, Nora Joyce, they were broke, you know, and, and and she asked for the help of the Irish government to repatriate his body. And the help was refused. And, uh, you know, now he's an industry in Ireland, you know, in the way that now there's a bridge named after Samuel Beckett, another person that they didn't like.
2: In, in, in the story, Gabriel Gabriel Conroy says uh, at one point, we are living in a sceptical, thought-tormented age. And, and that could apply to today, right? Yeah.
3: And, I mean, actually, that's the other thing, I think, that you get from reading Joyce uh, uh, now. Uh, Is that is that even though he dis he he disapproved of the idea that literature should be political, his literature is full of politics. uh, So uh, so, you know, don't listen to what writers say; look at what they do. (laughs) Uh, uh, You know, Joyce had this idea that writing should be—he said—static, not dynamic. By which he meant it should simply be. It should not attempt to persuade or to argue, you know, um, and uh, it should be a kind of essence rather than rather than a kind of polemic. And 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 that I mean, fair enough. Except that that you know, in the dead, there's a political argument, you know, that, uh, where people are talking about the Irish politics of the time, and and Ulysses is full of people, their varying degrees of sobriety. Having, having political arguments. Um, so so politics is all there all the time in him. And yet he doesn't make the mistake of making his books based on political issues. You know, and, and, and as a result, they don't date. You know, And, and that, uh, that's, I think, was a lesson that I learned, which is that it's one thing to say public affairs are a part of private life. And so if you're going to understand the private life, that needs to be a dimension that that you that you that you include. Um, uh, but the point is to make it a dimension which explains your your characters and their lives, rather than making it the subject. If you make it the subject, then you know we live in an age even more so than than when Joyce was writing. We live in an age in which in which things move very fast. You know, in which uh, the subject changes very fast. You know? um, and and if your book is too too rigidly linked to a particular matter, you know, then, then, it, then it, it it becomes like yesterday's papers, you know. And, and and I mean, I was worried about this actually when I was writing Midnight's Children because at the climax of Midnight's Children, there is this period in the mid seventies in India called the Emergency um, when when Mrs Gandhi suspended democracy for 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 about three years and 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 took on authoritarian powers and and the book has a strong point of view about that you know but uh, but i remember when i was writing the book worrying that you know a time would come at some point when nobody cared about Indira Gandhi or the emergency and i remember saying to myself when that happens this book is either going to get worse or it's going to get better it's either going to be it's either going to be damaged by being too topical You know when that topicality has faded, or it's going to. People will see that the underlying drive of the book, its characters and story, um, in a way emerge. You know when that topicality is is lessened. So, and I literally, I didn't know which it would be. I literally didn't know.
2: Of course, and it's so interesting, isn't it, that we live in the middle of this incredible debate about cancel culture, which does sit in a period of real polarisation of, you know, freedom of speech uh, versus authoritarianism and people saying, you know, you don't have the right to say this, but I do. And I I wonder how you reflect on, on that as a writer who is still keen to continue writing. I mean, I imagine that you're never going to stop writing until, until you can't anymore.
3: Well, I hope not. Yeah. I mean, I, I sometimes envy Philip Roth for having had the strength to stop. <laughs> but uh, but I, I don't. I don't. I don't plan to stop. Look, I mean, here's the thing about. First of all, who owns who owns material? You know, this this, this question about whether, the question about appropriation. Uh, but uh, my view is nobody owns material. Uh, anybody can write about anything, because otherwise. You know, men could only write about men and women could only write about women and short people could only write about short people and fat people could only write about fat people and, and you know, so on. It, it becomes very quickly ludicrous. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can be lazy about it, you know, be, uh, especially if you're stepping away from your own experience of life. Uh, to enter into a very radically other experience of life whether that's racially other or sexually other or whatever it might be you know uh then it becomes your business to get that right you know and to uh, to 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 find out about experiences which are not your own and write out of that knowledge you know, i think write what you know is fair enough but then sometimes you have to increase what you know um in, in order in order to be able to write and then there's a you know the other Question which I have great sympathy, with, which is the question of power: that who who gets to hold the microphone, uh, who is denied that? And I think that conversation that's happening right now, you know, across the media, it's it happening uh, in in television, it's happening in the film industry, it's happening in book publishing, uh, etc. I think that's a very important and valuable conversation that you know more sorts of people need to be able to to, to have to have access to. Uh, uh, to speech. you know, And uh, I mean, I saw the other day, I know there's been this fuss about, about Annie Leibovitz did a, 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 a cover of, uh, took a photograph of Simone Biles for Vogue, and everybody thought it was a terrible picture. And then meanwhile, you know, a young black photographer took a picture of Viola Davis for the cover of Vanity Fair. And it's a fantastic picture. And, uh, and you know, Basically, he knew how to light like black skin. And, It's not that, I mean, Annie's taken pictures of black people before. She's taken pictures of Michelle Obama and and Oprah Winfrey and Serena Williams and, you know, all sorts of people. But she got this one wrong. But the thing that amazed me was the fact that this young man, who I'm ashamed to say I can't remember his name, is the first black photographer ever to be asked to take the cover photograph for Vanity Fair, ever. And that's what I mean by power. You know, and, and, and uh, so I think there's, there, there are, the argument sometimes crosses into two or three different arguments. You know, I, I think the, 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 the question of power, the question of being able to enter other realities and how do you do that, um, that's one set of questions. Um, the question of silencing opinions that you don't agree with, you know, is, to my mind, is, is, is another question. Because, you know, his, historically, and certainly in my own experience, um, the force, the, the pressure for censorship, comes from the right wing, and 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 it comes if, if generationally it comes from an older generation, and 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 younger people are more iconoclastic, more willing to throw out the garbage of the old, you know, and 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 uh, and the left traditionally has been the, the, the in favor of free expression, you know, and and. What we now see—that's still happening. I mean, here, sitting here in New York, where the Trump administration conducts a daily attack on the freedom of the press, um, such as I've never seen in a democracy. You know, so, so, so there is still that pressure from the right to limit speech. But now there's a there's a kind of pressure from the left, from what people would call themselves progressives, you know, um, uh, to to outlaw certain kinds of utterance and. I've always thought of free, of, of democracy as being like the town square, you know, you, that there you are in the town square, and you're, and, and it's not, you know, it's an argument. Everybody's having an argument. Mm-hmm. And um, and the argument never ends. But the but the ability to have the argument is what I would call freedom. Mm-hmm. Because in, in, in dictatorships, the first thing that happens is people shut down the argument. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I think when the pressure comes from the right and the left that space for dis- de- debate is is squeezed you know, and, 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 uh, and I worry about that
4: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful, so it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's com slash intelligence.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads.
2: Let's turn to your third touchstone, Bob Dylan's "Mr. Tambourine Man." So, so tell us, uh, tell us why this this was this was the first track that was released on the acoustic side of the March '65 album, "Bringing It All Back Home." Why, why this one?
3: Well, as I say, it could have been a lot of tracks, but um, and by the way, I'm fine with Dylan winning the Nobel Prize, but I just think all of us should be given Grammys in that case.
2: <laughs> that's a brilliant by the way
3: <laughs> um what happened was when i was in my early days at, at at boarding school at rugby a friend of mine in the same in the same boarding house that i was in uh got hold of uh got hold of a, a couple of dylan albums and 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 was very very excited and and um summoned me into his little cubicle. We used to call them studies, but they were really about the size of a shoebox. And and he said, sit down and listen to this. And then he said, he said, don't say anything until you've heard the whole record. And he put on the LP, the vinyl LP, and played the two sides of bringing it all back home. And I said, you know, in love with it. And I began to, I opened my mouth and he said, no, 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 you have to listen to it all again he made me listen to the whole album again (laughs) and and by the end of that I was you know I was a Dylan fan and I have remained so ever since although his voice isn't what it used to be sadly
2: and and you've seen him a lot in concert
3: I have seen him quite a few times yeah uh uh, most recently about a year ago he he had a gig at the Beacon Theatre here in New York and and, and I went and, I mean, he's really not singing anymore. He's sort of doing something halfway between growling and shouting. I mean, his band is terrific, but, and the words are great, but, you know, he used to be, I mean, he never had a great singing voice, but he had a very expressive singing voice. And, and he had very unique phrasing, uh, uh, which is why very, very few people have been able to improve on a Dylan song. You know, there's, People cover cover Dylan all the time, you know. And
2: yeah, that that was going to be my next question. I mean, loads of people have done "Mr. Tambourine Man." I mean, are there any that you think match it?
3: The most famous one is the Birds did it, but but the Birds turn it into this kind of tumty tum song, you know? <laughs> 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 which, which it sort of isn't. Um, and people have tried to cover like a Rolling Stone, and it's no good. And I mean, the the, the one song of his that I think well, there's a few songs that people have tried to cover successfully, like just like a woman has has had a lot of very good cover versions and I shall be released and uh, songs like that, you know, um, but "Tamarine man, I don't think anybody, anybody, I mean, the birds version is, is, is pathetic really, (laughs) but I remember it struck me. First of all, first of all, it's a story song, you know, it's a long narrative song, um, and it's, and it's a long song. So it, it actually breaks the, what used to be the kind of rule in the early sixties that pop songs had to be under three minutes long, you know, and, and, and suddenly you have much longer songs coming out of Dylan. And, and a bit later when, when, when he released Blonde on Blonde, um, one, one of the four sides of the double album is a single song, you know, Sad Eyed Lady of the Lowlands is the whole side of the album, you know, um, and so he, Got people used in a way, I guess, in the way that, that J.K. Rowling got young kids used to reading very long books. Dylan got people like me used to listening to very long songs uh, and, and 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 finding the richness of them. Also, of course, it's a psychedelic song. I mean, it's a it's a it's a song about. I mean, Mister Tambourine Man is a is a drug dealer essentially, you know, um, and so the song is about a, a about an acid trip.
2: Hasn't, hasn't Dylan always denied that, though?
3: Yeah, he could deny it all he likes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, okay, he denies it, so what? <laughs> um, take me disappearing down the smoke rings of my mind, really? <laughs> <laughs> and I never did acid, you know. I mean, I was always much too scared to, to uh, take those drugs. And so, in a way, my only experience of it, acid trip, is through Mr. Tamarine Man and songs like that. Uh,
2: so you're you're a man of you're a man of words. So, um, you know, reflect on the lyrics. I mean, you talk about this as a long. I think it's about five and a half minutes long. This song. Let's just reflect a little with you then on the on the kind of surrealism of those lyrics. I agree. Well,
3: I mean, that's the thing that most appeals to me about it is is the, is the surrealism, the, the kind of fabulist nature of the song. As you know, that's that's kind of been my intonation as a writer anyway. Uh, and, uh, and Dylan, I mean, I mean, Dylan's writing is very beautiful and, and, it, and it showed me a lot, you know, uh, a lot of his writing. Um, what I wor- what re- resist a little bit is people saying that Dylan is a great poet, you know, because, because to my mind, the, the, the words and the music are so... Entwined, you know. Uh, I don't know what it would be like for somebody to read Bob Dylan's lyrics who had never heard the music. Um, 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 some of the songs, I think, would not hold up. I think actually, "Tambourine Man" is the one that comes very close to holding up. I think it's actually lyrically very powerful. And, and I mean, I, for example, I mean, I used to be able to do this. I used to have Bob Dylan memory competitions with Christopher Hitchens. <laughs> uh, and let me just tell you, trying to have a memory competition with Christopher Hitchens is the, is the dumbest move you could ever make <laughs> because, because Christopher had a, a retentive power for, for verse and for poetry uh, uh, greater than anybody I've ever known. And, and you know, you would say, you could say to Christopher, "Shelley, and he would do 20 minutes. You know, just, just from memory. He could do Byron, you know, et cetera. Uh, and, and he could do Dylan. So we used to have these competitions, which I would always lose, but, but they were, but they were enjoyable. And, and I used to be able to do Tamarine Man from memory, but you know, now I'm 73. So, so it's not quite what it was. I actually think the last verse, the last verse of Tamarine Man, is the one which is most poetically beautiful. So maybe I'll just recite that. Um, uh, it's it's the one which goes, take me, this is the, the drug one that I mentioned, take me disappearing through the smoke rings of my mind, down the foggy ruins of time, far past the frozen leaves, the haunted frightened trees, out to the windy beach, far from the twisted reach of crazy sorrow, That's very good, that. Yes, to dance beneath the diamond sky with one hand waving free, silhouetted by the sea, circled by the circus sands with all memory and fate driven deep beneath the waves. Let me forget about today until tomorrow. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me, etc. I mean, that's, I mean, that is poetry, as close as anything. And so pictorial. You know, it's, uh, it, it, it's it's full of it's full of pictures, all the way through. You know the haunted, frightened trees, the twisted reach of crazy sorrow. I mean, that's that's very good stuff. So yeah, that's why that's why, as I say, he is a great writer. He is a great writer, and and actually one of the things I partly because of my I think there's a lot of very great lyricists right now, of whom Dylan is. Very near the, at the pinnacle, you know, and then Paul Simon, Joni Mitchell, you know, Tom Waits, um, any number uh, of them, and, and and one of the arguments I would have when I was president of PEN America was say that we need to broaden our understanding of what literature is, you know, and and that there is no way, really, that you can say that these writers are inferior to most novelists who get their books published. You know, they're, they're they're actually at least as good, if not if not better, than most novelists. And after a very long fight, I managed for some time to persuade Penn to, to start granting lifetime achievement awards for lyrics writing. And Dylan said he didn't want it. He said
2: <laughs> He was holding out for the Nobel Prize, Salman.
3: <laughs> he really was. He really was, it turns out but like in the first year we get we would give it to, to two artists every two years rather than one a year uh, just for sort of more fun and the first year we we gave it to leonard cohen and chuck berry and they both came and it was an extraordinary moment because they'd never met and leonard cohen said this very sweet thing about chuck berry he's who he said, you know, everything began with Chuck Berry. He said, if if Beethoven hadn't rolled over, there wouldn't have been room for any of us.
2: (laughs) Salvan, thank you so much for sharing with us your your three touchstones. We have got about 10 minutes for questions. So I'm hoping that you'll keep your answers uh, short so we can get as many in as possible. So the first one is, um, in Golden House, you write... Stacks of ingots, sacks of doubloons, racks of Louis d'Or and buckets of ducats. I wondered how important it is to you how your writing sounds when it's read out loud.
3: Well, I mean, thanks. I, mean, I think the answer is I pay a lot of attention to the music of the words. You know, I mean, it just it's really continuing on from what we were saying about, about lyric writing. I do sometimes, not always, sometimes read passages aloud to myself. Uh, to, to, to see if, to see if they sound right, you know, because actually the ear is a very good judge of mistakes. You know, you, you, you can't fool yourself when you hear yourself saying something that isn't right. It gets past your defenses. So yeah, sometimes I do And particularly with long dialogue sections, because with the, 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 the difficulty of dialogue is to differentiate properly so that you so that the two people each sounds like themselves, you know. Um, and it should be possible to write dialogue without having to say who's speaking. You should know that from how they're speaking, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I do. I pay attention a lot to the music of it, and and yeah, I, I like, I'm lucky in that I have a, a for the last three or four books had this wonderful. Uh, Series of, of readings and on audiobooks, and which, are, which are actually much better than I could do myself. So um, I'm grateful for that. And yes, I, I do pay attention.
2: This The next one is from Frank in London. I couldn't help notice your three touchstones were an object, a piece of literature and a piece of music. In the current century, it would seem that children and young people might encounter far fewer objects, far less literature, at least in the traditional sense, and a more hyper-commercialised uh, music. Do you imagine in 50 years a teen today might be able to say her first iPhone was a touchstone and, <laughs> in as meaningful a way? Has something fundamental changed? do you think?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think some fundamental things change all the time, you know, I and that's that's sort of all right. Um, It's all right that the world changes. Um, And it may well be that an iPhone is a touchstone. I mean, iPhones are colossally transformative in our culture. I mean, uh, you know, even at the political level, I mean, I think one of the reasons why we're having this conversation about racism is because people are able to record... uh, racial abuses on their smartphones. It's it's not that racial abuses just began, you know, um, that they, they've been going on throughout the history of this country. But now people can see them and it changes the conversation. So I, I'm absolutely willing to believe that iPhone could be a transformative object, you know, um, but it's, it's true that, you know, we, I think, you know, I think the questioner is wrong about children's literature because I think children's literature is actually thriving right now. You know, I think, that, that it's it's an age of wonderful children's r- writers, um, and uh, I mean, you know, ranging from little children to to, to a young adults. But you know, Jackie Woodson, Neil Gaiman, you know, all, all, all sorts of people. Uh, uh, I think children are well served right now, you know, by 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 write, by books, and and uh, and seem to read them in, in you know, s- still read them in substantial quantities. But I do think that. The world is different and I mean, I have no idea 50 years down the line, what people will think of as their talismanic um, objects. I hope, I hope one of them is a book, that would be nice to think. <laughs>
2: This is a question from Christopher Clement Davis. Uh, was it reading Joyce that inspired you to commit to being a writer or is it too simplistic to say that? What what other factors tipped the balance for you? Because you, for as long as you can remember, you've wanted to be a writer. Yeah, long
3: before I read Joyce, when I was too little to read Joyce. I mean, Joyce actually was kind of, as I said, was almost off-putting because because the, 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 the scale of the talent and the achievement was so great that it made me think, well, I, I can't do that, you know. But, yeah, I mean, I was a bookworm as a kid, and, and, and I think a lot of writers come out of readers. You know, a lot of people who are in love with the experience of being with a book, being inside a book, as a reader, conceive of the desire to to, to write the thing that they love being inside. You know? and, and, and certainly that was, my, that was my experience, you know, that, that I, I began as a reader, and and when I was a little boy, I mean, my parents told me that that I would say to their friends when asked, "What did I want to do?" You know, I didn't say I wanted to be an astronaut. You know, I said I wanted to be a writer. Um, and 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 of course, when you say that as a kid, you have no idea what it means. And and I and I think I think all you know is that it means I love books. You know, uh, and. And to want to be a writer is a completely different thing from being able to be a writer. You know, and, and, and when I started trying to be a writer, my great fear was that I would not be able to do the thing which was the only thing that I'd ever wanted to do because I had no plan B, really.
2: Well, you you obviously didn't need one, uh, even if you didn't know that you didn't need one. This one is from Robert Swannell. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Uh, correctly. I was a pupil at rugby school at exactly the same time as you. Unlike you, I was useless academically, but I do have 1,431 separate Bob Dylan tracks on my iTunes. Astonishingly, having not returned to the school for over 30 years, I ended up chairing the governing body. It's now a much better and kind, a place with fifty percent girls. Other than discovering Bob Dylan, what impact, if any, did the experience of your four and a half years there have on your literary career?
3: Oh, that's so interesting. Well, yeah, I'm sure girls are a big improvement. I've, I felt that the quality of teaching was incredibly high, and 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 inspired me. I mean, I had teachers, history teachers, who gave me a love of history and I ended up being what I studied at university. I was actually very bad at French until I met a particular French teacher who inspired me, and I then became rather good at French. Um, he was a, a gentleman called Mr. Lewis whose initials were P.G., which meant that schoolboys, of course, would refer to him as the pig. So, so <laughs> pig Lewis was the, was the person who made me want to read French. So that's all of that, the academic side of being at the school. I, I have... I would give very high marks to. You know, but it was also a time when, when I had my first experiences of racial prejudice. You know, so there's that side of it, too. I, I remember coming into my little cubicle and finding a racist slogan written on the wall, kind of wogs go home. You know? and I, 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 I remember coming into another time, coming into my study and finding that my, my homework had been torn up and left in pieces on the floor. And so, yeah, so I, I learned that too. I learned that too. And, and that may not have been a bad lesson to learn either.
2: Let, let's just uh, end uh, where we began, in fact, with a question about partition. Do you think partition really could have been avoided? Was it not, was, was it not a capitulation to Jinnah's demands to avoid a threat of civil war?
3: Well, the point is, the question is when, you know, because you're right, by the end, you know, by, by the time you get to 1947, it's, it's not avoidable. But remember that Jinnah didn't start off on the partition side of the uh, of the argument. He started off on the other side, and and uh, was basically driven out of the Congress Party by what he thought of as as Gandhi's hostility to his leadership. You know, um, and which may be right or wrong, it's hard to say. There was a particular presidential election inside the Congress Party where Gandhi came down against his opponent, and as a result, Jinnah was not elected as the as the president of the Congress, and that's when he began to split away from it and join the separatists. I think there's a moment in the early forties when it could have gone another way that, that, that Jinnah could have been kept inside the Congress party. And in 1940, there's, a, there's a, the Quit India resolution. And at, at that point, a lot of the Congress leaders are, l- are arrested and jailed. And the Muslim League steps into their shoes and to, Assist with government, and that's seen as being betrayal. You know, and 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 I think maybe after the Quit India resolution, it was impossible to prevent it. But at some point in the late 30s, then uh, the beginning of the 40s, I think it was still possible. I mean, it didn't happen. You know, and one of the things I was taught as a history student was never ask the question "What if"? It's it's hard enough to understand what actually happened. You know, what if is an uninteresting question.
2: There's just one final question. I think we've got time for it. Um, about the possibility of you turning to India again as a subject matter of your fiction, uh, particularly in the context of Modi. I mean, India appears in all shapes and sizes in in many of your novels, but, but I, I suppose the, the, the question is is referring back, I suppose, to Midnight's Children.
3: Well, I mean, never say never, you know. But at the moment... I mean, I'm very interested in what's happening where I actually live, you know, um, and, uh, and, in, and in facing up to that. And, and, and not, you know, I mean, not even politically, because as one of the earlier questioners suggested, you know, the, the world is transforming in all sorts of ways at a very high speed. And, and, and that's interesting, you know, to live, to live in a time of very, very rapid change has always been inspiring to to literature you know i mean uh, shakespeare lived at a time in which the english language was transforming very rapidly and he became at the heart of that transformation i mean so much of the language we now use was, was stuff that shakespeare made up you know um, and uh, but to to live at a time of transformation is a, is a highly creative experience you know and and so uh, you know i mean i'm try to keep keep a hold of that, you know. Trying to ride that, trying to ride that horse.
2: Salman Rushdie, thank you so much for a fantastic conversation. It's been so delightful hearing about your touchstones and so much more. Thank you so much.
1: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing.